Hey everyone, welcome to The Down There, a monthly podcast where we have candid conversations about all types of bodies in order to destigmatize talking about what we keep down there. I'm your host, Caitlin. I hope you're staying safe, healthy, and at home as much as you can. We're a little late on this episode, but it's worth the wait because today we have our producer Molly with us for a conversation about health at every size. Health at every size is about healthy habits rather than the numbers on the scale. It recognizes that health outcomes are primarily driven by social, economic, and environmental factors that require a social and political response. Molly has been researching and breaking down the detrimental effects of diet culture, the dangers of BMI-based health assessment, and the systemic injustice of weight stigma as part of her own recovery from disordered eating and eating disorders. Molly has great tips for self-advocacy in healthcare spaces, curating your world away from diet culture, and reframing health. We do talk about disordered eating and eating disorders in the episode, including bulimia and anorexia. Purging is also mentioned, but there are no graphic descriptions or details. If these subjects are triggers for you, you can find a transcript of this and every episode on our website, thedowntherepodcast.com. We'll be right back with my conversation with Molly. There are two runoff elections in Georgia for the U.S. Senate on January 5th that will determine our ability to push for progressive policies for the next four years and beyond. Join Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams in getting out the vote in Georgia and protecting our elections. Go to fairfight.com to learn more, take action, and donate. Support the New Georgia Project, a nonpartisan effort to register and civically engage the new American majority at newgeorgiaproject.org. Black Voters Matter is an organization whose mission is increasing power in marginalized, predominantly Black communities. Effective voting allows a community to determine its own destiny. They advocate for policies that intersect with race, gender, economic, and other aspects of equity. Go to blackvotersmatterfund.org to learn more. Together, we can take the gavel out of Mitch McConnell's hands and get to work. The links are in our show notes. Hi, Molly. Hi, Caitlin. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad that you are joining us today on the Down There. Um, why don't we just start off with your pronouns, a little bit about who you are outside of your fabulous producer role on this podcast, and then a little bit about why you joined the Down There team. Sounds good. So uh, my name is Molly. My pronouns are she and they. And when I am not the producer of this podcast along with you, I am running a youth education program and am a elopement and family photographer. Tell us about your business. So Outdoor Chronicles Photography is a business that's centered around love and memories. My tagline is making memories into art. What I like to say that I do is I give my clients permission to spend time with each other, to love each other, and to just exclusively focus on what makes their relationship special. And while they're making their memories, I'm making the art. Fabulous. That's such a great description of what you do. And your photography is fantastic. And of course, we will be linking to your beautiful website and all your IG in our show notes. Um, You generously agreed to get behind the mic today with me because you are a huge proponent of health at every size. 
What does health at every size mean and why is it so important? So health at every size really is about celebrating body diversity. It honors that health can come in many different shapes, many different forms. It means that your medical care is weight inclusive. It means that the life you surround yourself with is uh, weight inclusive. And it goes against, you know, wellness and diet culture, which we are constantly surrounded by, you know, health at every size when done well, battling what we are surrounded by. Let's talk about this diet culture that we're surrounded by, because I know you are fucking fired up about it. Yes. So diet culture really is a system of beliefs that worship thinness and equate thinness to health and virtue. So it's almost like being thin makes you morally good. It promotes weight loss to being at a, so that you are attaining higher status. We've seen this in before and after pictures. Uh, it demonizes ways of eating while promoting others. We see this again, bad food, good food. I'm like, what are you talking about? Food is food. When did food have a moral standing? Uh, mm -mm. So it demonizes that. And it also oppresses people who don't match up with this ideal, in quotes, picture of health. So uh, that means if you're in a larger body, if you're trans folks, femmes, people of color, you know, it, it will say essentially, unless you are a usually white woman who is small and able-bodied and cisgendered, like you're not healthy. <laughs> that's amazing. And it's wrong. It's super wrong because that's not the vast majority of yeah. us. Yeah, health is not what you look like. And that's what health at every size is about. Can we talk for a second about BMI culture and the O word and where this bullshit came from? Yeah. In diet culture, which I want to say also our medical field is very much a part of, BMI is kind of held up as this supreme health standard. So I want to talk a little bit about what BMI is. 200 years ago, the BMI scale was invented by this Belgian academic who was a mathematician, astrologist, a sociologist. He was not a physician. He was a nerd, right? Oh. <laughs> he just liked data. So he was identifying the, quote, social ideal characteristics of a man. And of course, he's Belgian. He's looking at French and Scottish people. This is a white European man. So that's what the BMI data was about. So this was, I think, in the mid-1800s. So it was only later used as a measure of fitness. So then in the turn of the century, it measured your fitness to parent and was a scientific justification for eugenics. So it was for systemic sterilization of disabled, autistic, immigrant, poor people, and people of color. So the BMI has these really deep racist and uh, sexist roots. It was never actually intended as a measure of health. It was purely to measure populations for the purposes of these statistics, not individual people. So then the 50s and 60s come around and everybody's like, ooh, I like to be skinny and all this stuff. And the insurance companies actually began collecting uh, weight and height data. 
And though it wasn't scientific, it wasn't from doctor's offices, it was usually self-reported. And only then in the 50s and 60s did doctors start looking at BMI as a health measure. So that's BMI. I'm wondering where they even found it. They were looking for different ways to measure health. BMI seems to be the one that kind of lasted. I mean, diet culture has existed for ages, hundreds of years, but... It was during this time where weight really became important as a as an analysis and again began to define you as being good or bad. Right. So then, uh, you know, as doctors uh, were bringing in BMI as something that they were measuring in the 1980s, I want to say, is when they revised the definition of obesity to be tied to BMI. And so it wasn't until 1985 that all of a sudden we had obesity being linked to your weight. And then in the late 90s, the definitions changed again for overweight and obesity. And it was like overnight, all these people in our world became characterized as obese because they had changed the weight standard. They had lowered the thresholds. And again, this all has to do with money. It started with the insurance companies, and now the people funding the studies where they lowered the thresholds were companies like Johnson & Johnson, Weight Watchers, companies that were selling diet pills to people, which is based off of how people are defining themselves. Capitalism. Yes, it's all capitalism. Not about health at all, not one bit. I want to mention here something that you gave to me in preparation for this episode. You directed me to Christy Harrison's Food Psych podcast, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes because there's so much valuable information there. But I was stunned to learn that insurance companies don't actually need doctors to track weight in most cases. They use weight tracking as a quality measure that some providers actually receive bonuses and productivity pay based off of. That just makes me want to set my hair on fire. Yeah. And uh, this is something that I think is huge. And I don't think even doctors know about it. In another episode, you know, Tori talks about the system, you know, Mm. and how complex it is and how it's designed to be complex to keep people guessing. I would bet a lot of doctors don't even know that this is purely for capitalist reasons, again, that you're collecting this info. I want to mention too from the Food Psych podcast that you can ask your medical practitioner to put the word refused under your weight category. And I never have thought to do that. I just think about how many times I've been made to have my weight checked in a hallway somewhere in a doctor's office. I did that like two weeks ago. Did not love that. And I can tell them no. Yeah, I think being empowered is really important. And we as people getting care, unfortunately, it's up to us <laughs> to to make sure that we stick up for ourselves and educate our healthcare providers that we can say no. And you're absolutely right. Again, the I bet it was the first thing you did before anything else. It was probably, do you need to pee? And mm-hmm. then let's weigh you. It's mm-hmm. the very first thing. It our medical field, our culture, again, obsessed with weight, that that is the first thing that you see. And then that's going to affect everything going forward in that medical appointment. I want to talk about your journey with the need for more compassionate care starting so early in your life at nine years old, when you began experiencing disordered eating. 
Can we start there? Yeah, of course. So I have experienced a variety of eating disorders um, and disordered eating for 25 years now. So it's been the majority of my life. I first began having a disordered relationship with my food at nine or 10, I want to say. I was definitely in fourth grade. I know that much. (laughs) And it was really hard. It was a lot of shame that was surrounded by that. And for years, you know, I needed help. But again, it's not something that we talk about. I guess to go back to doctors, because I was a normal weight, there was not really anything to be concerned about on a doctor's end, which brings me to something that I suggest for doctors. Doctors should be asking about eating habits. They should be asking about exercise habits, because I think a lot of kids in particular, go undiagnosed for much longer than they need to be if they ever get diagnosed. I mean, it's there in the literature. The longer you go being sick, the harder it is to recover. So for me, you know, I I started having disordered eating at nine-ish, and I didn't get treatment until I turned 18. So that was my senior year of high school. I finally went into treatment. It was hard. Uh, I went into treatment with a diagnosis of bulimia, and I came out of treatment with a lot of restrictive behaviors. Again, to tie into BMI, so for an eating disorder diagnosis, it's very restrictive. That hurts people because a lot of people with eating disorders actually transition through a variety of them. They might be anorexic and then bulimic, then binge. The treatment doesn't work really that is currently provided because it only will treat one element of the eating disorder. For example, anorexia, the diagnosis of anorexia is tied to a BMI number. However, right, that doesn't make sense because what if you have somebody who is in a larger body who is severely restricting their food and has been doing so for such a long time, right? They're doing the same exact behaviors as somebody who is underweight, you know, at a lower BMI doing the same things. But that person in a larger body is probably going to be rewarded by their doctor. That person will never get a diagnosis of anorexia because their BMI is not low enough. It's so messed up, that doesn't make sense. So for me, I had a diagnosis of bulimia, I also had anorexic tendencies. And when I went into treatment, because my problem wasn't that I wouldn't eat or not eating, I was actually taught portion control, I was taught to weigh my food, I was taught to count calories. I had been sick for nine years already. I knew how many calories were in every bit of food, right? I didn't need that, but I came out of treatment thinking I was better. But when what I was doing was severely restricting and weighing every bit of food before it went into my body and exercising all day long. But I was healed. I was better. Okay. What I'm hearing from you is that you left treatment with more characteristics of bulimic behavior. I left uh, treatment with more characteristics of anorexic behavior. Okay, okay. Can we just take a sec? I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry. It's horrifying that portion control and restrictive eating is the treatment for bulimia. Can we, for a moment, define the characteristics of bulimia versus anorexia, because they're a lot broader 
than I thought that they were. I, I looked this up. Yes. So bulimia is characterized by binge purge episodes. Uh, normally, there's, I think, a number of episodes a week, I think, to get an official diagnosis, I think is how they do it. Anorexia, again, has to do with weight and severe food restriction. But you will see bulimic, a lot of the, the other uh, women that I was in treatment with had a diagnosis of anorexia. However, they also participated or uh, in binge, binge purge um, activities. So that's where I say it's a really gray line, right? It's not an exclusive mm. between definitions. Does that answer your question? It does. No, it absolutely answers my question. Um, because when I looked up bulimia, I didn't know that things like fasting, strict dieting, excessive exercise was also potentially a part of that as well. Diet pills, stuff like that. Yes. So the purging aspect doesn't necessarily mean um, throwing up. So you really left with a lot of these anorexic behavior measures in place as treatment for your bulimia. Yes, exactly. So that was my first go around in treatment. So I, uh, I then went off to college thinking, hey, yeah, I'm so cured. I'm going to the gym all the time. It's great. <laughs> so, and then, um, and then because none of the actual work to figure out the mental illness part of it had been done, it was just I had been taught how to live a different way. Of course, I came back. You know, eating disorders are ugly mm -hmm. that way. And then I went into my second round of treatment in my mid 20s which was better in only that I was older and had some more experience behind me and was better at advocating for myself. But it still was treatment wrapped very much in diet culture. I mean, even just talking somebody through your history is complex. So I spent the next couple of years after my first round of treatment flip-flopping between bulimia and anorexic behaviors. When I was in my anorexic phases, I would always think I was a recovered person from my eating disorder mm. because, again, I was not expressing the bulimic behaviors that I had been taught was what my eating disorder was. However, I did know that I had a problem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in my mid-20s. I was like, hey, no, I'm not healthy. Everybody thinks I'm healthy, but I'm not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> and even just trying to explain to doctors what your eating disorder is, because the first thing they look at is your weight. And I don't think I'm, I've ever on my intake been asked specifically about my eating, my relationship to food, my relationship to exercise. It's always been from the weight first. So I think a lot of people get missed who have disordered eating uh, tendencies by the medical field when they really need help figuring out this relationship. And of course, again, people are rewarded in this wellness culture for, for having eating disorders in many ways. Molly, what have you learned about what it means to be healthy, given all of your experience here? Healthy has nothing to do with weight or body size is the biggest thing. I am now in a larger body than I was for years. My health metrics are so much better than they ever were when I was in a smaller body running half marathons and marathons. I'm just healthier now, but the world probably wouldn't see it that way. 
Uh, but as an example, when I was in a smaller body, I had high blood pressure, I had heart palpitations, I had electrolyte imbalances, you know, I had all these metrics that were really not great. And I would get medication to try and help them. But now here I am in a larger body, not on medication for those things. <laughs> and and I don't have heart palpitations anymore. My blood pressure is normal. Like all my metrics are great, except for my BMI. <laughs> which you're being told to somehow keep under control. Right. I'm guessing. I feel empowered now, which is really good. And I've spent a lot of time educating myself so that I can educate my healthcare providers. I'm sorry that you have to educate your healthcare providers. You know, again, if it's NIH has this definition of overweight, of course, that's what they're taught. And, and the studies right? These very flawed studies that talk about health consequences uh, for different weights. Let's look at the people who are funding it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not usually a blind or this is all for the goodness of the people's study. So this is what doctors are learning. And also doctors are people. So doctors are out in the world surrounded again by this belief that thin is better. I want to read something back to you that you said to me a little while ago. Okay. You said, if you live in a larger body, you don't want to go to the doctor. You don't need to be told to lose weight. Medical professionals tell you that like they're the first person to ever say so. People in larger bodies miss out on diagnoses because doctors are focused on weight, not finding the problem. Yes. And this is why we need health at every size and more weight inclusive care because people have their self stigma of going, but they also don't need to be shamed when they go to the doctor. If they're having That's heart right. problems, if their knees are hurting, they want to go for their issue. You know, they don't want to be told it's just because of their weight, which is usually not. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a study that came out recently uh, that said that, People in with larger bodies had worse outcomes when it came to COVID. COVID, as we know, has a very interesting effect on people in that some people get very, very sick and some people don't get sick at all. So if you catch COVID, but you actually have some underlying illness that you haven't been treated for because you didn't go to the doctor because you were going to be stigmatized by the doctor, right, then, mm -hmm. then you're having an adverse health consequence due to weight stigma at the doctors. Similarly, we see uh, studies, you know, that praise smaller bodies, right? I think there's studies that talk about longevity. And if you fast right. regularly, if you don't eat, those studies don't talk about who the participants are. Were they a wealthy person who had a personal trainer and a personal chef to prepare the meals that they did eat? What were the other social factors that affected that person going into the study, right? Was it somebody who had a harder life growing up or what, were they actually pretty privileged and therefore already set up to live a longer life? So the, the social determinants, right, aren't really a factor when it comes to weight-based studies. Mm, it just makes me think of how much trauma plays into this and thus racism also plays into this. Yes. Can we talk a little bit more about the mental health aspect of eating disorders? Yeah, I will say that I have been through a lot of therapists and a lot of not great therapists. The mental health aspect of it is incredibly important. 
again, I think that's where the day treatment I received, the outpatient treatment, like all of that was flawed in that it only addressed the physical symptoms. I will say that the field seems to have come a long way since I first got treatment at 18. My therapist, despite being a therapist for people with eating disorders, also was a very restrictive person uh, in that like promoting restriction as treatment, talking constantly about food, obsessing about it. (laughs) So that's not helpful to me, Mm -hmm. at least (laughs) it's not helpful. So what I did find helpful was actually only when I turned 33. By that point, I've been through, I'm going to say five, six therapists, multiple doctors, (laughs) but only now have I found a therapist that actually works for me and is health at every size and doesn't talk about my body in any way that is punishing. So uh, the way that I found her was by doing interviews and it it takes a long time, but a lot of people say they're health at every size, but it's only through like a conversation that you could tell if they really are. So for example, my therapist will help me focus on how my body feels versus what it looks like, what it like my hands on it feel like. It's like, what does it feel like to me inside? you know, when I'm walking. Mm -hmm. That work has been really helpful for me. In addition, she's helped me with my panic disorder, (laughs) my anxiety, you know, Um, but that's all intertwined. But what you said earlier, how the mental health plays into having an eating disorder, I have been in recovery again for two years now, I want to say. But I almost liken it sort of like cancer in that like it's remission in a way Mm. because it's always there in your brain. So having the mental health support to help you work through those feelings, to give you the tools to question what you yourself are being told is true, but it's not true, that's huge. I think about all of the times when I've looked in the mirror and seen something that isn't actually physically there. Right. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I actually don't have any mirrors in my house. Tell me more. I think what you do to keep yourself empowered and away from harmful diet culture is fantastic. Could you share with us your strategies? Yeah. This came from a suggestion from my therapist when I was wedding dress shopping. I was terrified. It was a terrible experience all the time going in because I knew I'd have to look at myself. And she said, just cover up the mirror. Just tell the tailor to cover up the mirror. That was an empowering moment. It was so, I felt so strong saying that. And shortly after that, uh, my partner and I moved and I just didn't bring the mirrors. We have no mirrors in the house. We do have two bathroom mirrors that are just our face level, you know, above the sink. So, you know, I can look at my face. <laughs> but but there's no looking at my body and judging it in the way that, you know, I might be tempted to. As for clothes, I cut out the labels. I've had to work really hard and it's I still work really hard on trying to focus on the fit rather than the number or the small, medium, large, XL, XXL, you know, that one is still hard. I don't go to the store to try on clothes uh, because, again, there's mirrors. 
So I have all my clothes, if I buy anything, delivered to the house. And when I put it on, it's literally, how do I feel in this? Am I comfortable? I love that. And all of those sizes are completely arbitrary anyway. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said about strength. I've had plenty of times in my life, I think lots of people have, where you feel fine and you feel good, but the world is telling you that you are not okay. In preparation for this conversation, just thinking about my own life, I feel good when I feel strong. And something that I'm struggling with now as uh, my body is changing, you know, it's a little COVID, it's a little depression, it's a little, you know, some other stuff that's going on. When I don't feel strong and like secure in my body's ability to do then I start to feel unworthy, like, oh, what am I good for if I can't do what I used to do? And, you know, part of that is like this job thing and COVID destroying theater, but it really is about how I feel in my body. And I've recognized that that's ableist behavior yeah. that I'm participating in. And and I think that's where finding other areas of strength can also be really helpful, right? You know, just with anything in life, if we put all our things into one bucket, right, it leaves so many holes and light leaks for things to come on in and and interrupt our balance that we have. And so I think about um, what you're saying about doing things. And I'm thinking about when I speak up and say things, mm. you know, and I think I think there's different ways about having having strengths. Um, to provide us with that stability and, you know, to calm down those anxious thoughts and the, oh my God, this world, you know, and where am I in this world? So. Right. And for so many of us, you know, our bodies are changing because our lifestyle is changing and, you know, maybe our careers are completely upended and trying to make ends meet and feed children by yourselves. People are dealing with endless, endless stress factors here that change how we feel about ourselves. Yeah, and that reminds me actually of this um, text message group that I was in for a while um, and have since left, but it was a bunch of professional women, smart, smart women, talking about business strategy, talking about things going on in the world, talking about how to how they were addressing some kind of conflict that they had in their own career. And every day somebody said something about their body that was negative, Somebody said something about restricting. Somebody would say something about like being good enough for dessert, right? So oh. so the reason I bring that up is we have so many important things going on in our life and we're so, so smart and intelligent and yet we allow our feelings about our body or where we fit in diet culture to be the thing that we talk about and then that just throws us off balance and it's um it's really sad. It is sad. We have better things to do. We have so many better things to do. And like you said, bodies will change, but that doesn't mean anything. Again, it doesn't change your value. You've done a lot of work on yourself to rid yourself of shame for having an eating disorder. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I worked really hard to rid myself of an eating disorder, but only started ridding myself of the shame very recently. I started talking about it more with my partner about, you know, and, and actually it was because I needed more support. 
So being able to voice where I was having problems and concerns and without needing him to fix it, I did not need him to fix it. I just needed him to support me as I battled these emotions. Um, but it really was when you maybe made an Instagram post or did something, we got in touch. And for some reason, I like I was having a very, very angry day, <laughs> you know, at this world around us. And I decided to be like, Caitlin, let's talk about this. And we just had a phone call. And I think besides my partner and my um, my best friend from college, and maybe like a handful of people, like you're the only person I was like completely honest with. Just because I was in that moment of like, why do we have to be feel ashamed about things? I don't know what the numbers are of people who experience disordered eating, but I, it's a huge number, a huge number that have experienced disordered eating in the past, whether they had a diagnosed eating disorder or not. Mm. And eating disorders are something that we have conditioned to say is very shameful, you know? And after we talked, I don't know, I just started coming out, if it was, if that's right, to more people about my struggles. I'd go on a hike with somebody and somebody would talk about food in, in a like punishment sort of way, not just this is delicious. I love those conversations. Those are great, <laughs> you know? Um, and I would just say, hey, you know, and I'd question them about why they were thinking that way. I wouldn't say, hey, this is my history, but I'd start the conversation and then maybe like, a month and a half later, I might, I might say something, you know, and again, not out of pity, but just as a like, hey, I'm here if you want to talk. Like, this is something I know a lot about from my perspective. It's not everybody else's perspective. It's just mine. So that's how I've rid myself of shame was talking more. That's what we're here for. That's literally why we started this podcast. Yeah. And I'm really passionate about breaking down the barriers surrounding shame really, really passionate about it. I'm so glad that you are happy and healthy in your body at your current size. I'm curious what side effects and things you carry with you still, if anything. Yeah, we talked about the mental health, but there are also physical side effects that have happened. So I have a diagnosis of severe GERD and Barrett's esophagus which is a precancerous uh, condition. I get ulcers, hernias. Barrett's esophagus is when the cells in your esophageal lining begin to change. So they think that they are intestinal cells. <laughs> so they're just all confused. And so they morph. So everything gets messed up. And the reason that this happens and the reason that it is linked to my eating disorder the severe GERD is because my esophageal sphincter, the flap is broken. So essentially, whenever I eat, whenever I drink, I have a gastro uh, esophageal reflux. Many people experience this. A lot of pregnant people experience this. A lot of people experience this when they eat spicy food. The difference for me is that it's chronic and severe. I am medicated. I have the highest dose of medication that they allow, and yet I still have symptoms because that flap is broken. And because that flap is broken, those little cells travel up into the esophagus and create all those other problems like the Barrett's esophagus. For me, uh, that means that I go in regularly for testing. I have um, endoscopies 
currently because there haven't been any changes in a little while, uh, which is great. I get endoscopies every three years. Um, yeah, but I'm going to be on medication and looking at uh, surgery potentially, you know, in the in the future. And you say you feel shame around this because you believe it's caused by your eating yes. disorder? Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. So I feel like I caused this through uh, my behaviors, you know, that I weakened that sphincter on purpose through my behavior. So that's where early diagnosis, I think, uh, for eating disorders can really help because there are long-term side effects. I mean, there's you know, I've been lucky that my heart is strong, you know, because there was a time when it wasn't. Um, but a lot of people mm-hmm. can never recover from the heart issues that often go along with eating disorders as well. So, so I consider myself pretty lucky in that way. It's been pretty interesting with the Barrett's esophagus getting treatment because I was first diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus in 2010 when I was in a smaller body. When I first was diagnosed, people were like, "They again, everybody knows about my eating disorder. It's on all <laughs> my, uh, my paperwork for all my doctors, all my records. So all you got to do is read. But when I was first diagnosed, I was in a smaller body. And they say, oh, my God, not only are you a young woman, but like you're in a small body and you're not pregnant. Why do you have GERD? That doesn't make sense. Because my GERD was so severe, they ended up going in to get these biopsies, to check it out, and then saw the, the dysplasia, the precancerous cells, and got a biopsy out. So that's how they found uh, the Barrett's esophagus. In my smaller body, I felt like my care was very focused on let's figure this out and let's figure out how to help you. Let's talk through the treatment options. Let's talk about what you're looking at over the next couple of years. I didn't have health insurance. So there's a lot of questions around that as well. Over the next couple of years, I moved a lot. So I saw, I think it was four doctors total. So after that, I moved to New Haven. You know, we went to grad school together. Um, That was my first experience with a different doctor. And the first thing that happened, and I had had at that point three different biopsies. I go to this new doctor. The first thing they say is, you can't have this. You're too young. That doesn't make sense. You don't fit what this diagnosis is. We don't believe you. We're going to go do it again. So whenever they do it again, that means you're looking at two endoscopies within a month rather than just a, a one to monitor the condition. Tell people what an endoscopy is. And actually, if you wouldn't mind defining GERD too, in case people... Okay, so GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's a long-term condition where acid from the stomach comes up into the esophagus. Um, sometimes, in my case, all of the food, <laughs> everything comes up. Uh, there's just no stopping it. You as a human might experience reflux, you know, when you take Tums. But it, but the GERD is the long term. And I always think it's so funny when uh, I used to take Tums before that I got my current medication. So it's just a funny story. I was at my friend's house. I'd forgotten my bottle of Tums. I would take 10 to 20 a day. I mean, so many. And oh my God. <laughs> I asked my friend if they have Tums. They're like, oh, yeah, we haven't used it in two years. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How do you? I just didn't know that people. Like, didn't down tums as if they were gummy bears so that's actually what brought me to the doctor (laughs) was the fact that i was eating so many tums and i realized all of a sudden that was not normal so an endoscopy is uh pretty pretty disrupting so for me you go in in the morning or you go in at some point and essentially they put you out 
I think there are some endoscopies where they don't have to put you out. For me, they do because, again, they're going so far down. They put you out and they stick a camera down your throat to check out all the lining of your esophagus. Depending on who you are or what they're going down there for, they might go all the way into your stomach. So that's what they do for me. They go into my stomach and they get scrapings. And then, you know, you wake up some few hours later and have a sore throat. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then the next day you learn of all the silly things that you did while you were on anesthesia. So... Well, as fun as the last part is, that's, you know, the fact that they didn't believe you. That's a day ending. Yeah. So they didn't believe me. So I had to have the first endoscopy where it was to get a re-diagnosis. It was two endoscopies. And then that happened again when I moved to Vermont. Again, they saw a young woman and didn't believe me. So I, again, had to do the two endoscopies. And that was very expensive. And then I moved to New York. When I moved to New York, I was believed I was also in larger body. Rather than looking at my treatment for my disease, what I was recommended to do was to go on a severely restricted diet and lose weight. I had not, in my other three experiences, being treated for GERD and Barrett's, had that be a part of the conversation. So it was a real eye-opener to see how the difference of my treatment in a different body size how that varied. And I can only imagine that it's worse for others in our population. The first thing I said to this doctor who was talking to me was that I had a history of eating disorders, that I was still in active treatment, and that that wasn't going to work for me. They told me that was what I needed to do in order to ease my symptoms. I had been in a smaller body before. It still felt exactly the same. I knew that it wasn't going to make a difference whether I lost weight or whether I severely restricted the foods or went on this elimination diet. I mean, it was all just crap. I can only imagine, too, that for somebody living in a larger body who hasn't been diagnosed with eating disorders but still is living with them, how damaging. Yes, and I think that's where it's really irresponsible, actually, of doctors to prescribe elimination diets um, because there is, again, data out there that even if you don't have a history of eating disorders, if you go on an elimination diet, when your body is lacking energy, right, calories are energy, when it's lacking energy, your lizard brain, your survival instinct kicks in and wants you to eat, right? So you become obsessed with eating. You become obsessed with food, even if you don't have a history of disordered eating. Even just thinking about restriction can make you hungry. I think all of us have experienced this. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I did like, I did an exercise program where I had to basically go like Atkins-ish for three months. And I've never wanted a potato so bad in my life. Right, because you don't have permission to feed your body the way it needs to be fed. So so I actually think it's really irresponsible because people without um, without a disordered history have the potential to develop disordered eating behaviors or really disruptive mental thoughts. It's so galling to me that A, your treatment changed based on your body size and your doctors can see your history and they're still going with this damaging or potentially damaging. Yeah. I, I don't adoption. know what it's like to go to medical school, 
But what I've read and heard from people is that there's not a lot of time spent on nutrition or on eating disorders or on that aspect. So, so unless you really want to like live health at every size, you know, and, and preach that and be a doctor who is weight inclusive, I think you really have to seek that out for yourself. I keep coming back in my head to something you said earlier about how you think it would be really helpful and life-changing if doctors asked more about eating habits and about exercise habits. That's not about the size of your body. That's about your behaviors. So this is kind of a twofold thing, I think. Um, One, doctors need to actually be interested and have the permission to spend time with their patients for a conversation. I think that's lacking in a lot of places. I think HMOs Mm. have these time restrictions of how much time they could spend. Literally just asking, you know, what is your relationship to food? I think that can be a good start. That's a very broad question. But then I think you can go further and you could say, what kind of proteins are you eating on a daily basis? What kind of carbs are you eating on a daily basis? You know, without being triggering, when it comes to movement, you know, overexercise can also be a mental problem. So, so you want to clock that, but like, is the movement joyful? I love hiking. It brings me so much joy. So that's my joyful movement. I love riding my bike, dancing in my room while I'm doing the laundry, right? Those are all joyful movements. You know, I think doctors can do a lot more to screen for eating disorders, disordered eating, relationship with your body, uh, the mental health aspect of it, just by asking a few questions. This started at such a young age for you. And we're talking about how external influences can find their way into your life. And it happens so young. And I wanted to tell you this story because I think so many people have something in their life at such a young age where the cruelty of the world and BMI culture creeps in. I must have been maybe 11 or 12 and I went to, you know, just like a regular physical. When you're that age, it's like, at least for me, whenever that was, it was like pre-gynecologist. So like they, they check everything, you know, like they pull down your underwear, they, you know, do the touching, they pull it back up. And I still had, I remember I had my, my right leg up on, on the table still. And the doctor who had like just pulled up my underwear, poked the inside of my thigh with his pen cap and said, you need to lose weight. And I just remember this wave of just hot and then cold flesh through my body. And it's something that I can still feel in me now. I'm 36. Yeah. I know that that is not an isolated incident by any means. This is just one teeny story in a wave. It's an it's an example of where care was not taken. And it's so sad, like at 11, 12 years old, that just like breaks my heart. And again, like you said, it stays with you. Like people just think some offhand comment won't stay, but so often it's the smallest thing and it does and you remember it, so. Yeah. I want to ask, is there some ways that anyone can go into a doctor's office, their current doctor's office, and try and push for a more inclusive space. Most definitely. 
the biggest one you already talked about was refusing to be weighed. Now, refusing is such a hard word. I I don't ever refuse in a mean way, you know? But when they say, hey, take off your jacket, take off your shoes, we're going to just grab your weight, I just say, no, thanks. And then they're like, oh, but we need it. And then I say, no, actually, you don't. Um, you can just put that I refused. And I do it with a smile on my face, and I'm so sweet. Uh, when I went into a recent uh, OBGYN appointment where they talked about weighing me, um, should I get pregnant uh, to track and what a quote healthy range of weight to gain would be and quote what I should be looking at. I just said, you know, this is not helpful for me because of my history. I don't want to focus on what weight my body should be at. I'd rather have a conversation about what nutrients I need. And actually, I learned. I think they can measure the baby's, the fetus's growth by just measuring with a measuring tape around your stomach without without weight. So there are other ways, or like maybe it's from your navel up. I, I'm not sure what it is, but there are other ways for doctors to look at the growth of your fetus. Because I know that weight, weight is a big part of um, pregnancy. Other ways to advocate for yourself, really being proactive. For me, I've been very honest with my doctors. I don't want to say pushy, but slightly pushy. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only one speaking up. So for example, when um, this doctor gave me the severely restricted diet and uh, told me I needed to lose weight, I told her how it made me feel to be told this. It was really hard to say that, but I think a lot of us look at the medical professionals as this they're supposed to help you. They really are. But sometimes they do make mistakes and they do do harm. But like, how how are they ever going to know unless we say something? We already talked about what you do in your internal world to keep your space safe for yourself. In this world of being on the computer so much, and online so much, what are you doing to curate your space there? Ooh, I love that you use the word curate because that is exactly what I do. I am very deliberate about what I bring into my world. Instagram is my main social media tool. I use it for work. I use it to catch up with family and friends. Uh, And there's a lot on there. So the biggest thing that I did is deliberately follow accounts that are helpful to me. So I follow accounts such as um, Your Fat Friend, people who are body positive, who are weight inclusive. I follow uh, different artists who look different from me, you know, or maybe the same. You know, I, I follow people whose bodies represent a diversity. And therefore, I'm not associating health with one thing. In regards to clothing brands, I only buy from brands who showcase a variety of body sizes on their websites. For, again, going to Joyful Movement, the biggest thing for me has been following fat people engaging in Joyful Movement. And some people may be upset with me using the word fat, but for me... The definition of fat is the same way that I identify myself as white or queer. You know, it's a descriptive. This is another podcast with another person or more people, but fat phobia comes from us believing that fat is bad. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. So yeah, so I think that's been the most empowering following those accounts. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And 
Is there is there anything else that you want to say? Wherever you are in your journey, just know that there are people rooting for you. Um, you know, health at every size and escaping diet culture and recovering from eating disorders is hard. It's really hard. Um, so just know that there are people rooting for you. Thank you so much for getting on the mic with us today and for sharing your story. I am so incredibly grateful for our friendship, for your work on the podcast, your advocacy, your wisdom, and just the immense positive and empathetic impact you have on my life and on so many others you interact with. I just love you. Oh, I love you so much too. I'm so proud of Molly for sharing her story on the down there and grateful for her knowledge. She might be surprised to hear me say this, but every time I talk with Molly, I am reminded that there are many different types of power and that hers is both gentle and so potent. Molly is an incredible photographer specializing in intimate weddings, elopements, family photography, and outdoor adventures. Visit her website, outdoorchroniclesphotography.com, and follow her on Instagram at outdoor underscore chronicles, where Molly drops gorgeous new content all the time. As a special companion to this episode, Molly agreed to share a fantastic essay she wrote about shopping for a wedding dress and getting married while recovering from an eating disorder. The dreaded dress shopping she mentioned in the episode is just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. Her story is harrowing, human, and funny. Do yourself a favor and read Molly's essay. The link is in our show notes. You can find links to the podcast we mentioned by anti-diet dietitian Christy Harrison called Food Psych and her book Anti-Diet in our show notes, as well as another essay Molly recommends by Sarah R. Zinn about weight stigma and the medical field and stereotype confirming research. For the month of December, our Instagram stories will feature accounts that we love who are body inclusive, fat friendly, and justice oriented. Starting with your fat friend. That's YR fat friend. They're a writer, podcaster, fat, queer, female truth teller who you should definitely add to your Insta feed. We're also boosting queer, femme, and BIPOC-owned businesses to shop this holiday season. Jeff Bezos has enough money, doesn't he? Doesn't he? So, follow us on Instagram at the Down There Podcast to fill your feed with some body joy, fun down there facts, info about our guests, and much more. For a transcript of this and every episode, or to send us an email, visit our website, thedowntherepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, tap that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, rate us on iTunes, write a review. We love and are grateful for your kind words. All of your stars help more folks find us and create a glorious constellation in our hearts. And please keep telling your friends, your family, your lovers, and the person you always see on walks around your neighborhood who makes eye contact but you never talk to because it seems too awkward at this point, right? The Down There is produced by myself, Caitlin Smith-Rappaport, and Molly Hanegausen, with logo art by Jean Kim Studio, music, sound design, and editing by Kate Marvin. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, wash your paws. We'll see you next time on The Down There.